WLRN Edition 83. Broadcasting in 3, 2, 1. I was born woman. Off my knees I will stand for my liberation. Sisters rise again. I was born woman. Off my knees I will stand for my Greetings, and welcome to the 83rd edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. This is Jenna, your loving lesbian feminist sound engineer. This month's edition trains a bit of a different lens on women's self-defense against the violence of patriarchy. Two years ago, the World Health Organization reported that a third of women globally have experienced violence, sexual or otherwise, at the hand of an intimate partner, and that as many as 38% of femicides globally are committed by intimate partners. 25% of women will experience this violence by the time they are in their 20s. From a March of 2021 joint news release, quote, Intimate partner violence is by far the most prevalent form of violence against women globally, affecting around 641 million, end quote. Yet violence isn't the only thing we must defend ourselves against. The misogyny we live in daily, while not necessarily violent, requires a mental fortitude in which we are not trained. What we get is just the opposite. The psychological effects of female socialization are literally a groundwork laid for a life of subservience. The undoing of our socialization is the beginning of defense itself. And I hope that what you take away from today's edition is much more than advice to hold your keys between your fingers and aim for the soft spots. I spoke with birth worker, women's physiology specialist, and all-around badass Adelaide Meadow, and healer and friend of WLRN Serendipity Day, about how they believe women can effectively defend themselves against the patriarchal onslaught we face every day. With Adelaide, we focus on the female body and how we can best serve to protect it. Serendipity and I discuss self-defense as more than combat skills alone. In our final segment, Sekhmet Shiawal offers her thoughts on female self-defense, male violence, and why the two are at the heart of feminism and patriarchy in her Edition 83 commentary. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. Before we jump into the world news, check out this sixth installment of Getting Organized, an activist primer with Elizabeth Miller. This time around, Elizabeth talks with Anne Menashe about her wrongful dismissal from and lawsuit against her former employer, Disability Rights California. Please visit our YouTube channel for the interview in its entirety. Hi, this is Elizabeth Miller reporting for Women's Liberation Radio News, WLRN. Today, I have with me in the studios uh, Anne Menashe, who is an attorney in California, who was recently fired for expressing the opinion that abortion is a right that women have based on our biological sex. Anne has recently filed suit in January of 2023 
in San Diego Superior Court against her former employer, Disability Rights California, which is the largest legal nonprofit in the state. And she asserted claims of sex and sexual orientation discrimination, harassment, and retaliation related to her termination after almost 20 years of employment. I'm happy to have Ann Menashe here today to talk to us about her career, her firing, and what she's doing about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been a lawyer since the 1977 in California, a really long time. Uh, I've done most of my work has been around uh, civil rights, uh, representing disadvantaged people, people of color, uh, people with disabilities. Um, throughout my career and poor people. Um, I was in private practice in San Francisco. I then did um, uh, public benefits work at Legal Aid, uh, Legal Aid Society of San Diego for four years. And and then in 2002, I moved to Disability Rights California, which was called Protection and Advocacy at that time, and they changed their name. And they are a federally funded um, nonprofit, as as you said, the largest legal nonprofit in the state, as far as I'm aware. Um, and uh, so that uh, experience has been was great on the whole. I, I loved my work. Um, I still love this area of work. Um, I did some impact litigation. I represented people at hearings. I negotiated settlements. I did the whole um, range of legal work. I also was a grassroots organizer for disability rights. We had meetings with the mayor. We had protests against budget cuts, and we worked in, uh, around the issues of housing and homelessness. And I'm still doing that on the issues of homelessness right now in a major piece of class action litigation. So uh, this came as a shock. Uh, no place is perfect, but I was absolutely shocked from there was Let a projection. Was, yeah. was transgenderism something that you had discussed at work before this happened? Yeah. So I was going to a little background. Actually, in 2016, I was uh, doing Facebook and uh, somehow I had befriended everybody on the planet. Uh, at that time, I was supporting Bernie Sanders. Then I supported Jill Stein for president. Anyway, I was on these all these Facebook communications with a whole bunch of people I didn't know. And somehow the issue of sex oppression and gender identity came up. And I said something like women are oppressed as a sex and we should all unite. <laughs> something really, really mild. And I got called a fascist and a bigot. And they actually went to my employer at that time in 2016. Yeah, three people went to my employer to complain about me and that I shouldn't be working there because I was a bigot and a fascist. At that time, this was being in 2017, after the election, my employer was like, that's fine. I don't see you. you're fine. Don't worry. <laughs> Nothing wrong with what you said. I don't see anything wrong with what you said. You don't have to worry. They told me about it and I was like blown away. And uh, but I didn't have to worry. There's nothing wrong with what you said. That was what I was told. But things started changing on this issue um, slowly. There had always been diversity trainings uh, of one kind or another. But the nature of those trainings started to change with a big emphasis on promoting an extremist version of transgender politics. It built up to that. Then my employer made a statement, a public statement, condemning the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. Equal access to health care is about it's a fundamental human right. And all people should have the right to make informed decisions about their own bodies. 
This retrograde decision also negatively and disproportionately harms people who already face structural barriers to care, including people with disabilities, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, LGBTQIA plus individuals, immigrants, people living in poverty, young people, and those without the means to travel. Not a word about females. So that what you just read was a statement that your employer put out while waiting for the Dobbs decision to come down. And that statement never once mentioned women in a statement about abortion rights. Exactly. So I actually did two things. One is I did write a a private um, email to the executive director saying that, thanks for this, uh, but really you should include women because it's females as a sex that are being impacted. And he said, thank you for your opinion or something really short like that. So I thought, well, you know, people are discussing this online. He welcomed feedback. So I so I just did it. I responded on the uh, old staff list in a very polite way. Yeah, 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 what you, yeah. You know. this is what I said. So glad DRC, that's Disability Rights California, came up with a statement in defense of Roe. Thank you. Access to safe legal abortion is a life and death necessity for women as a biological sex across the board, regardless of race, economic class, gender identity, sexual orientation, parentheses, even lesbians can be raped or anything else, and an absolute prerequisite for equal female participation in our society. Of course, the most vulnerable females, especially poor women, women of color, women with disabilities, young girls, unhoused women and girls, women and girls in prisons, etc., will suffer the most under draconian anti-abortion laws. Wealthy white women have often managed to get abortions even before Roe. As a veteran of the feminist struggle for abortion rights that preceded Roe, I never thought it would come to this. Yet it is good to remember that women won this right primarily through grassroots organizing and peaceful mass protests in the streets, and that is the way we are going to protect it. Thanks again, DRC, for taking a stand. That was it. Thank you for that interview excerpt, Elizabeth and Dan. As mentioned earlier, the full interview can be seen on WLRN's YouTube channel. Now we turn to our World News segment with Emily Fay for this Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Take it away, Emily. Thanks, Jenna. 30 women are suing beauty company Olaplex, claiming their hair products contain harmful chemicals that cause hair loss and other negative side effects. The lawsuit claims several Olaplex products contain a chemical called Liliol, which was recently banned from beauty products in the European Union due to its impacts on women's fertility and fetal development. The lawsuit alleges the company removed Liliol from Olaplex packaging in June 2021, but the chemical wasn't removed from products until February 2022. An old inventory containing the chemical has continued to be sold. Olaplex products have been promoted vigorously online and in print media by celebrities and social media influencers. Since the lawsuit, several social media hairstylists have speculated a possible reason why many women have experienced hair loss after using the products is because Olaplex and the people promoting it recommend using the products daily when in fact they should be used only as an occasional treatment. Pro surfer Bethany Hamilton, who became famous as a teenager after surviving a shark attack while surfing, has announced she will boycott the World Surf League after the organization changed their policy to allow males to compete in women's categories. 
Hamilton made the announcement via an Instagram video in which he questions male inclusion and says she feels a responsibility to speak up for other women who don't feel they're able. Trans activists condemned Hamilton online with many sharing memes praising the shark that attacked her in 2003 when she was 13 years old. In Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, Mayor Oh Si-hoon has announced the city's women-only parking spaces will be converted to family parking to be used by pregnant women and people traveling with children. Women-only parking spaces were originally introduced by Mayor Si-hoon in 2009 after a series of violent attacks on women in parking lots and garages. The spaces are located close to building entrances so women do not have to walk long distances alone in the dark. In a city with nearly 17,000 public parking spaces, about 2,000 were reserved for women. Despite government figures showing that in 2021, two-thirds of violent crimes committed in Seoul parking lots were sexual crimes such as rape, sexual assault, and harassment, city officials have said the women-only spaces are no longer necessary. Announcing the change, Mayor Si-hoon said it was time to, quote, consider families. Feminists in South Korea have said the change is just another anti-feminist policy from an increasingly anti-woman government. A representative of the Korean Women's Association said, quote, The government is trying to push ahead with anti-feminist policies, and now we can see these regressive policies feeding through into local governments. In Spain, the parliament passed legislation which expanded abortion rights for teenage girls and allows adolescents as young as 16 to legally change their sex. The new law gives 16 and 17-year-old girls the right to an abortion without their parents' consent, mandates menstrual products be free to women in prisons and schools, that hormonal contraceptives and the morning-after pill will also be free at state-run health centers, and gives women the right to paid time off for debilitating menstrual pain. The law also ensures a woman's right to have an abortion in a state-run hospital. The second half of the legislation passed allows adolescents as young as 16 to change their legal sex marker on official state documents without medical intervention. It also permits minors between 12 and 13 years old to change legal sex with a judge's permission. Children between 14 and 16 years old must be accompanied by a parent or guardian to change legal sex under this new legislation in Spain. CNN anchor Don Lemon was removed from the air for almost one week as the media conglomerate grappled with what to do about his sexist comments on live TV against Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. The newscaster referred to Miss Haley as, quote, not in her prime, stating that, a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s, 30s, and maybe her 40s. Mr. Don Lemon himself is five years older than the woman he was criticizing for, quote, being not in her prime. His co-anchors of the news program, 40-year-old Poppy Harlow, quipped, I think we need to qualify. Are you talking about prime for childbearing or are you talking about prime for being president? After Lemon was berated February 16th on live TV by the other two women on the show, CNN executive Chris Light assured employees that Mr. Lemon would receive, quote, formal training upon returning to work. He also said that it was important for CNN to balance accountability with fostering a culture in which people can own, learn, and grow from their mistakes. On February 23rd, two well-known rapists, Harvey Weinstein, movie mogul from Hollywood, and R. Kelly, R&B artist from Chicago, were sentenced to additional prison times for the acts of sexual violence against women and children they have committed. 
Weinstein, 70 years old, begged for mercy as he was sentenced for another rape in a Los Angeles court. R. Kelly, who was sentenced by a Chicago federal court to an additional 20 years in prison for child pornography charges, will serve out a total of 31 years for multiple crimes against women and children. R. Kelly is 56 years old. In celebration of International Women's Day, which is March 8th, we encourage you to do something like a banner drop with a woman-loving message, a social media post, or even just sending a note to your favorite gal pal in honor of our day. Lear Keith and Kara Dansky are appearing in St. Augustine, Florida for a WDI USA speaking event focusing on nonviolent direct action tactics and strategies. This speaking event takes place on March 12th at 42 King Street from 12 to 2 p.m. For more information, email info at womensdeclaration-usa.com. If you live in Florida, spread the word and get sisters to this public event on March 12th in honor of women as adult human females and women everywhere. Three important media events happened in February that WLRN hopes will fuel the fires of our feminist hotbed and ignite our billboard fund once we come up with what we feel is a winning design. It will certainly be something having to do with J.K. Rowling or Harry Potter, since two of the three big February media events we are highlighting were that columnist Pamela Paul of the New York Times published a piece entitled In Defense of J.K. Rowling that illuminated a pathway towards sane dialogue at the very least in this mixed-up trans train wreck we see in society and all of the backlash it has caused Miss Rowling. Second, the podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, released on February 20th, tells the beginning of multiple stories that Rowling shares with interviewer and host of the series, Megan Phelps Roper. The third important media event was the release of the new documentary film called Affirmation Generation by Panacole Productions. It was removed from Vimeo a few days after its release on February 18th, but was quickly and quietly reinstated after pressure from parents, detransitioners, and Twitter users who created a buzz on social media platforms. To view Affirmation Generation or to schedule a community viewing on March 12th, Detransition Day, go to www.affirmationgenerationmovie.com. On February 17th, KPSS USA, Keep Prison Single Sex USA, staged a mobile truck billboard protest in front of the New York Times headquarters in Manhattan. The protest was inspired by the recent letter sent to the New York Times by 200 signatories, 180 of whom are contributors to the New York Times, complaining of recent coverage of the risks of medically transitioning minors. Thistle spoke briefly with Amanda Stolman, director of KPSS USA, about this action for our World News segment today and files this report. All right, I've got Amanda Stolman on the line. She is the director of KPSS, Keep Prison Single Sex USA. And something really exciting happened in New York City this last month. And she's here to tell us the who, what, where, when, and why of it all. Thanks for being here, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm happy for the opportunity to talk about this. So the week of uh, the middle of February of 2023, um, in response to the New York Times continuing to very tentatively and very slowly start to cover issues related to trans ideology, in particular in regards to the medicalization of children, um, that prompted 
a number of groups who appear to be led by GLAD um, and other gender ideological groups and prominent individuals. It led those folks, along with about 180 contributors to the New York Times, to issue to the New York Times two separate letters objecting to their starting very tentatively to cover this issue. And in response to that, these groups, which, um, to, you know, to no one's surprise, but to everyone's disappointment, included groups like the Women's March, the Feminist Majority, Ms. Magazine, the National Women's Law Center, um, to issue a number of demands to the New York Times. And um, the, the, the basis of their demand was that the, what the Times coverage was in their minds starting to be was, um, quote, anti-trans, um, anti-trans bias. Um, and they insisted that the coverage um, cease immediately and that the Times stopped um, questioning best practice medical care and to stop questioning science that, in their words, is settled. So in response to GLAD and these other groups issuing that and other demands to the New York Times, keep prison single sex, uh, being aware that the New York Times and other mainstream media has failed to cover most issues related to, quote, trans ideology, and has been almost entirely silent on the issue that we are focused on, which is women in prison being housed with men, that we wanted to uh, send a message to mainstream media, the New York Times in particular, but not only them, that um, while we are appreciative of uh, their maybe slowly stopping to uh, no longer bowing to the demands of gender ideologues, that we would like them to keep going, keep covering these issues um, and expand them um, beyond the extremely important issue of medicalization of children, but to cover the totality of how gender ideology is damaging the culture. Yeah, so was it just by chance that uh, the J.K. Rowling article was um, published on February 16th electronically, and then on February 17th is when you did your action, and they also sent their 200 signature si or signed letter or the letters to the New York Times all around at the, the same time? Was it just... By chance that that J.K. Rowling article came out, did you know about that ahead of time? I did not know about it at the time. What they really seemed to be reacting to, Glad and company, was the coverage of childhood medicalization. And they issued their letter on February 15th. Um, and that is when they had their own billboard truck, uh, front of the New York Times and in the Times Square area. And... We actually didn't, you know, that was on social media kind of late and later in the day on the 15th, and we didn't really see it till the 16th. So on the evening of the 16th, which was a Thursday, we started to organize our own billboard truck in response awesome. um, to theirs. And to Did you have message. a confrontation with them at all in on that day? They were not there. I don't know whether their truck was there only for their one day. They had seemed to suggest it might be there for longer than that, but we did not see their truck at all. 
Um, ours was the only one in front of the New York Times. It was there for several hours. We called the newsroom while we were there to let them know, hey, we're downstairs. We would love to talk to anyone who has questions or wants to learn more about this issue. And while people did exit the building and take pictures of the truck, which has the website for Keep Prison Single Sex on it, and they would take pictures of each slide as they came up, um, nobody came out to interview us. But our hope is that they will learn about the issue. They'll read about it. If they want to come and talk to us later, we're happy to do it. Would have mm -hmm. been great on the day. But anytime, we are happy to talk to anyone yeah. in the media on this issue because it is just one of those absolutely underreported um, subjects. Yes. And has the New York Times given a response to the 200 signatories of the letter complaining about their anti-trans bias? We did. And to... To their credit, in particular, they directed a response to the 180 plus contributors. And they essentially said to them, uh, we're journalists, we're not activists. Fair. Um, fine. Very that short and sweet and to the point. And I think it's such a great thing that they published that JK Rowling story right around this time because yeah, there's lots of different articles in the New York Times. Some of them may have um, agreeing viewpoints, and sometimes they might not have agreeing viewpoints. And that's what a newspaper should be hosting, is a variety of viewpoints and to spark a discussion. We need to have a long, I mean, we've, we've been needing to have a discussion for a long time in our society about transgenderism and what it's doing on all of these different fronts. So it's a happy coincidence that that article came out right around the same time. Um, what else did I want to say? Did you get any response from people on the streets? Uh, were there any trans activists there at all? There were no trans activists there. Uh, that I saw. There were a number of people who would come by, pedestrians who would come by and take pictures. Uh, the street is actually a bus route. We had a number of friendly honks from municipal bus drivers, which was great. Some friendly waves from, from truck drivers and other people in vehicles. Uh, there was only um, one encounter uh, that we had with people who objected to the message. Um, interestingly enough, um, it was, uh, two middle-aged women, uh, who objected to, uh, to the truck. But aside from that, if there were objections, people took a picture to, you know, post it on their own social media and roast it later, I guess, uh, but pretty much left us alone. So that's Roast fine. it and roast it. That's how that's we do fine. our social media these days. Huh? That's, right. that's, that's funny. Right. Well, thank you so much for that brief synopsis. That was Thistle speaking with Amanda Stolman of KPSS USA about their truck billboard action in front of the New York Times headquarters last month. Thanks for filing that report, Thistle. On February 9th, the Free Press published an article by Jamie Reed, a woman who had worked at the Washington University Transgender Clinic at St. Louis Children's Hospital from 2018, a year before the center opened, until November of 2022. Reed details a disturbing reality in which every child who walked through the clinic doors is affirmed regardless of any mitigating factors. Missouri Senator Josh Harley and the Missouri Attorney General have begun an investigation into the clinic. Some lawmakers in Missouri are also pushing new legislation which would prohibit minors from being prescribed hormones or surgery before the age of 18. 
The clinic's website claims only patients over 18 receive surgeries, but this claim is easily disproven by the evidence Reed provides within her article or a quick search through social media where thousands of trans-identified teenagers document in detail their experience of being prescribed surgery and hormones. That, that concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. I'm Emily Fay. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at womensliberationradionews.com and letting us know what's going on. That was Sleater Kinney with their song, The Last Song. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Jenna did with women's health practitioner Adelaide Meadow about the importance of knowing our bodies and being realistic in our approach to physical defense. Adelaide has a proficient understanding of women's physiology and about the things that make sense for our health and well-being versus the things that don't. Enjoy this interview and be sure to visit her Instagram where she is dropping all forms of knowledge to help women thrive daily. Let's just jump into it. Could you introduce yourself and tell us briefly what your background is regarding the relationship between physiology, female-focused strength, radical feminism, and safety? Yeah. All right. So, hi, my name is Adelaide Meadow. Thank you so much for having me. I am a physiologist and a devout student of the body, specifically the female body. 
And I have a background in a variety of different kinds of anatomy and physiology training, not through a medical lens, but through an applied lens, mostly through movement and then through midwifery studies, because then I went on to study um, midwifery and attend home birth. So that's really where my body knowledge is coming from. I also have had extensive, um, you know, circumstances in my own life that have led to a lot of physiological focused learning. And you can learn more about that if you um, look me up, but I, you know, suffice to say, I've gone through a lot of like female focused healing for my structural body as well that informs my work. So in addition to being a physiologist, I also, um, from that perspective, run a well woman care practice. So I see women for a variety of different pelvic health concerns, a lot of things that you would go to the, go to the gynae for, but you maybe want an actually women's physiological holistic based approach. Um, specifically bringing the importance of structural anatomy into that discussion. So how, if we're not actually focusing on the unique differences between how male and female bodies are built from a structural perspective, not just even from like an endocrine perspective or a cell biology perspective, but really adding that level of structure to our overall care and how often by supporting structure and function from an alignment and a strength and a muscular and a fossil based perspective, we see better women's health outcomes in a variety of different concerns ranging from pelvic infections to STIs to prolapse to painful sex, the rest of it. So I that's the lens through which I see women in my well woman care practice. As I said, I also attend births and have the incredible gift of being able to do so for women in my community. Um, and then I think I, this is potentially why I'm here talking with you. I also talk a lot about um, feminism and contemporary feminism and how that relates to physiology and women's culture more broadly. So the understanding, I like to say, I am a feminist from a physiological perspective. So really understanding how what we think about the body underpins every aspect of life and culture, right? And how when we start to utilize that lens to look at our lives as women, I think that's really where women's liberation comes from. So I speak and teach a lot on a variety of feminist topics. I teach courses on how physiology and feminism overlap. I also see a lot of other professionals in how they can sort of add this lens of physiology and their feminism into their work, whether it's with the body or otherwise. And then lastly, why I think why I'm interested here is in addition to all of this stuff, I'm also like an athlete, I'm an athlete. I'm someone who strength trains and I'm really into strength training specifically from the a female physiological perspective. I used to train like I was a small man and it really harmed my body. And now I train like a woman, right? And I help other women train like women. So really taking into account all the differences that I have just, um, you know, aforementioned and creating movement practices that are truly like liberatory for women and working towards our optimal pelvic and reproductive health, as opposed to movement practices that are based on male physiology, but are sold to women. And trust me, there's so many of them ranging from yoga asana to dance to Pilates, like all these ones that are sold to women that are based on a male biological standard. So really doing a lot of re-education and creating programs and training for women that's specific to their body. And Within that, I know that you asked me about the relationship to safety. Um, so my husband, I'm happily married. My husband is a trained combat sport athlete, and he specifically trains jujitsu. And I did train jujitsu for about a year. And I'm also just very familiar. I used to work in a jujitsu gym and work with male combat sport athletes doing a variety of other type of complementary training. Um, and I do have some views that we're going to get into today just around the concept of women and the concept of self-defense 
And really, when we think about women's physical safety, what is it that we're actually talking about? Because I think we live in a world where we're like, oh, yeah, we want women to defend themselves like against what, for what, in what circumstances, and what does that actually mean? And how do we bring that forward through a feminist physiological lens? I feel like when we talk about women's self-defense, we usually think of uh, like a martial arts program or at the very least tools that we could have in our arsenal to fend off a would-be attacker. And I'm just wondering, especially after your experience, like how effective do you think that type of approach is for women to actually defend themselves? I think it's interesting because my takeaway, honestly, and I'll just tell you an anecdotal story. So I had a training partner that was in that class with me and she was in a circumstance when we were in that class and we were about the same size and build. So we were great training partners and we had a great time when we trained together. And then um, she had a situation where she was on the receiving end of domestic violence. And she's like, and I did some of the things that we were taught. And it did like absolutely nothing. Like I realized that in that moment, my aggressor was actually someone who had 60 pounds on me. And that it was like a joke for me to think that my nine months of like some women's self-defense was actually going to help me. And I remember she was like crushed after that and like didn't actually really feel like doing it. She really had thought that it was going to be more helpful. Mm-hmm. And the caveat that I want to say here is I do think that significant study in jujitsu or just, I mean, I think that might be the most effective one actually in terms of martial arts training for women, because it's not, it's based on leverage more than strength, like in terms of the technique, but the women that I know that I think effectively defend themselves against men are women who have dedicated their life to that training. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there are women who train five, six days a week. They're incredible athletes engaging in fights. And like, this is their life. Yeah. And guess what? Like, that's not, that was never going to be me. And that's never going to be 99% of women. Those women, if they were actually in that situation, they might've had a, you know, a better outcome. The narrative that I was taught that like, if this ever were to happen, if you were ever to be aggressed, that like these would be helpful tips and tricks I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I know some of that stuff, but do I think it would actually like keep me safe against a man who actually had like, like truly nefarious, uh, intentions? Like probably not Mm. right in my personal experience. And I think that that specific scenario would maybe have done me better than arguably any other. But I think if the average women's self-defense training is not even that good, it's not once or twice a week for a year. It's, as I said, very brief, that like yeah. a woman that emerges from a self-defense training, say after, you know, four or six or eight weeks, and she knows a couple things, it can actually create, I would say, a dangerous situation of like a sense of false self-confidence for women, where they'd be more willing to be in a risky situation because of their beliefs about their own ability to defend themselves. When I actually don't think that is usually what is, you know, helpful. And then I think about the male population, And like most men aren't trained fighters. Like most men don't know a lot of this stuff either, but there's also a lot that do. The amount of men that know how to throw a punch is more than the ones that don't. And just remembering that too, it's like no world. If I trained for the rest of my life, would I be able to be physically dominating to like my average 5'11", 200 pound husband? Like in no world would that be the case. There's a size discrepancy and then also the actual ability to do harm if there's harm intended. And I think that that's a big deal. 
the intention of doing harm against women is an incredibly like powerful motivator for male strength as well. So mm-hmm. um, why I like to bring this up is as someone who thinks a lot about female physiology, female strength, female strength training, self-defense, and has like worked sort of tangentially in the combat sport, um, you know, world and field. And then like, is also very aware of it, even just through my husband and my marriage. Like I think that the vast majority of clinical women's self-defense I mean, it might have other benefits for women in terms of just like fitness or overall confidence. I do think that women should know how to like throw a punch. Like I don't like, I think those are all good ideas, Mm -hmm. but in the ideas that actually improving the overall safety or like improving like women's like health outcomes in terms of, you know, minimizing male violence. Like I just don't believe that that's true. It might be somewhat controversial, but Mm -hmm. important to say. That's based on physiology though. Like your feeling on that is because. Of course. Right. So now that we've talked about all that and and why you feel that that does a disservice to women who are trying to defend themselves or may have to defend themselves or want to be ready to defend themselves, <laughs> I don't want this to be totally demoralizing here. Uh, what should we be doing? Like what? <laughs> we have to take some action, yeah, right? Okay. Like the reality that we live in, uh, is, it, we have to respond to that reality, not what we want, which is men shouldn't be violent. Like, okay, that's nice, but they are. And so... Yeah. So I do think, I mean, many of the things that were taught of just like being aware, being alert, um, basic, uh, you know, just like tips of safety, not really self-defense, I think often go much further than even the concept of women's self-defense in in terms of like, you know, hand-to-hand or physical combat. I also think, and I know this is a, you know, a charged topic, what comes to mind here in terms of women's self-defense is the concept of just like gun ownership and firearm safety. Mm-hmm. And I bring this up because we know that men and firearm violence against women is one of like the leading causes of death from violent crime against women, right? And if the idea that I would like be able to protect myself against an aggressive male with something other than a weapon, I think is unlikely. And so it like for me, this is where I am an advocate for like women's firearm safety and women knowing how to safely utilize and protect themselves with a firearm, mm-hmm. which is easier said than done. Like I'm not a gun person. Like this is not really my lane yeah. of genius, so to speak. Yeah. I'm not someone who like grew up with guns. I'm not someone who's really into guns, mm-hmm. but I am really into women's safety and I am really into women's sovereignty. And the more that I have been um, sort of in this world of risk helping women respond um, to, you know, violent situations, the more I see this as being honestly like the most legitimate aspect of women's self-defense against male violence. And that's a really big deal to say. And like, this gets into much larger, larger issues of, you know, sort of moralism versus feminist jurisprudence. If we're going to take it into sort of an ideological concept of like, you know, they always say like, if you're not prepared to shoot a gun, don't pull a gun, right? That's just true because just pulling a gun is a crime, right? Just pulling a gun is attempted murder. So if you're not actually willing to shoot a gun, then don't pull a gun. Mm-hmm. And when we live in a world that is has a system that's based on moralism, right? Meaning like murder is murder is murder, right? Not like, and that's wrong across the board versus, again, I talk about this a lot in my classes versus maybe the concept of feminist jurisprudence where, like, if a woman were to shoot a man in self-defense or maybe after he had, you know, violated her for the last 15 years, like, those are actually tried the same under the law. So I'm not saying that this isn't a complicated issue in terms of, like, rights within our current 
current legal system. And it's also, you know, not to, again, sound like doomsday, but that does paint sort of a pale picture of, you know, overall women's self-defense, which I'm not trying to, you know, elaborate on, but I do think it needs to be mentioned as we're bringing up, you know, the very real and scary and terrifying and unappealing reality of firearm self-defense. Right. right? Yeah. So like, what would I do? Right. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, and if you're listening to this, like, I don't want you to think that I have like grown up or lived my life, like learning how to, you know, have um, firearm self-defense. That's not actually my background, Mm -hmm. but the more I think about it, the more, and the more I'm exposed to this type of, um, you know, this type of story or these type of women reaching out, the more I, um, sort of the more I learn and the more dedicated I become to making that be part of my long-term story mm-hmm. in terms of like my overall dedication to my own health and safety and that of my family, mm-hmm. which whew, that's loaded and complicated. If you would ask me that 10 years ago, I was like, a, no one should be able to have a gun. Like, like that was my perspective. Yeah. But now that's not the world we live in, right? Just like the world we live in is one where men are are violent against. Right. Well, you mentioned maturing. And like, I again, I do think it's a maturity thing because being hard and fast against guns, I mean, unless you have a personal story where, that makes you feel that way, I feel like it's usually more of a political commitment. And mm-hmm. the yeah. older you get and the more you realize, this is just how I feel about it, that, that it, you don't have to be committed. You can think for yourself. You don't have to be a gun nut to think yeah. that it makes sense to own a gun. <laughs> exactly. And I really want it. I, I think you put that so well. And I also think that the there's also gun ownership and then there's um, like firearm self-defense, which I think if we're thinking about the skills that are to be learned, there's a difference in being able to own a gun and actually defend yourself with a gun. Sure. Which, um, as you're thinking, as we were discussing, you're like, well, what would women do? Like, if women were were willing to take self-defense classes, I'm like, well, that's where I would probably start. And also, I'm obviously a huge advocate for, like, strong female bodies. Like, look into my work. I teach strength training programs. Like I want women to feel physically capable, mm-hmm. right. And, um, able to move well. Right. And I think that that, if I was to say that that didn't have a relationship to our safety, I would, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's like a primary factor, but I do think it is an aspect, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I'm not saying to, that we get to just like completely that, you know, I'm not recommending that we completely and totally neglect our physical bodies and, you know, in service of our, I mean, certainly our long-term health, but also this discussion around women's safety. But within that, it's like, yeah, I mean, fire out, fire out self-defense class for women. But I, I really just want to reiterate that like, there's a difference between being like into guns and into gun culture and being a woman who owns a gun for personal self-defense. And I think that, how much I used to equate the two really uh, like clouded my vision as to like the actual physiological reality um, of the lack of safety of not only my own safety, but of women in general. Mm-hmm. Right. So and I'm, that's great that you s- say that about the strength training and whatnot, because it's not like you're saying that women shouldn't take a self-defense course or that women shouldn't know how to defend themselves physically. It's just that it's more like keep in mind that you're probably going to have a hard time actually using this in a situation with a man who's coming at you with the intent to harm you. Exactly. And yeah. like, I think there's a lot of other really great benefits. I'm like, I did think I gained strength. I did gain coordination. I do actually feel like I know how to throw a punch, which I bet is that, which I would consider as a useful life skill. 
If women wanted to work with you and your female uh, physiology focused approach to everything, how could they get in touch with you? So you can find me on Instagram. You can follow me at Adelaide Meadow and you can go to my website, adelaidemeadow.com and you can see a lot of the work that I do there. If you're specifically interested in this intersection between feminism and physiology and really how they go together and how to be building the skills that we talked about, not specifically for our skills, but just building the foundational skills in our lives that we need in order to, I would say, really advocate for our female liberation. That is the topic of the Women's Work Course, which is a group mentorship course that's all about um, physiology, communication skills, and feminist history, and how they all overlap in the work that we do in the world. So if you're interested in that, that course is currently open for enrollment, and we start at the end of March. That, and then other than that, I have a bunch of different courses that strength training women for women to healing from common public health concerns. Um, yeah, I have one all about gender for the female body specifically. I have one about the physiology of orgasm. I have a lot of different courses centered this physiological content. And then lastly, I obviously I have a full global women care practice. So if you actually do want to work with me one-on-one as opposed to in a group context or in a um, more self-paced context, absolutely. I think um, clients all the time who are dealing with a variety of public health concerns and we look at them from a really full body feminist physiological perspective. So there's a lot of different ways you can engage with me and my work. And yeah, please don't hesitate to chat. From across the femisphere to women worldwide, worldwide to women worldwide, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier. This is your grassroots, 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 grassroots community radio station. This is your radio station. Women's Liberation Radio News. Now we turn to Jenna's interview with Serendipity Day. Serendipity is also a women's health practitioner. She is a spiritual advisor, herbalist, and radical feminist. Her specialty is in healing trauma, specifically trauma from sexual abuse. This conversation implies the full scope of women's self-defense, women's spirit, how we've been conditioned, and how we can center our bodies ourselves and realign our thinking. Thank you, Jenna, so much for having me on. I am a longtime listener of WLRN. I recommend it out to all of my friends, so I'm so uh, happy to be here. My name is Serendipity. I am a spiritual advisor, herbalist, and radical feminist. And I specialize with working with women healing from sexual abuse. Um, I work with women in one-on-one -on -one containers and in group coaching sessions, uh, group uh, courses, and so on and so forth. I, you'll find me at women's festivals, women's retreats, and uh, spending time in women's circles. So I specifically wanted to talk to you about uh, self-defense from a psychological standpoint, um, how women have to protect themselves when they're out in Area 51, as I call it, you know, patriarchal society that we all live in. Personally, like, I think that groundwork is something that's laid in the socialization of girls from the beginning. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California and 
I was like nine, 10 years old and I had gone and gotten a manicure with my friend and my friend's mom. And my friend and I, we were walking home uh, and we got catcalled at, you know, we're 10, 11 years old. And it made us feel so good, right? It made us feel so grown up. We were so proud. And we told all, because we were like the first girls in our friend group to get catcalled. And looking back at it now, those men absolutely knew that we were children. There's so much to unpack, especially when women first come into feminism and into all of these things. But it starts before that. The reason I felt good getting catcalled is because I was already conditioned to see this as an acceptable behavior from grown men, right? I, I mean, I've heard Mary Lou Singleton say that gender generalization starts in the womb, right? Like we already start treating babies differently, knowing if they are a boy or a girl. And then gender stereotypes get put on and children start enacting them by two years old. And what's interesting about that is that little babies, girls and boys, our center of gravity isn't even different until like five years old. We talked um, about that. Our other interviewee this month, Adelaide Meadow, talked about center of gravity and that that's a difference that matters. So what do women have that is lower than the sternum that men don't have that could possibly make our center of gravity lower? When I was growing up, I always was told that it's lower, but I was never told where. When I, I remember asking my surf coach, like, where's my center of gravity if it's lower? And he said, below your belly button. What's below our belly button that men don't have that make, <laughs> that make our center of gravity pivot? Our womb space is what we are defending. Our womb space is, is, is our spirit to a certain extent. Um, I define spirit by anything that is... Uh, a beacon of life, anything that creates life. And so the number one on that list is mothers, right? Number two on that list might be water and air and the earth and, you know, like anything that helps support and creates life is uh, what what I define as spirit. My spiritual practices are very tangible. And my spiritual practices all revolve around my life giving blood. When you look into the etymology of blessing, it means to let bleed. And of course, this is referring to the blood of women. All spirituality comes from the blood of women. I know one of my teachers, Ruth Barrett, she said, um, in every corner of the universe, in every corner of the earth, we see the first depictions of a deity being of a mother giving birth. And if she births, then she bleeds and she knows intimately the cycles of the moon. And so like when when we talk about spiritual self-defense, I think it's a very tangible thing that we are talking about. We're not talking about like ethereal uh, metaphysical things. It's like this, you know, like our spirit is in this human body. It is in this earthly world. You started by talking about how you were catcalled as a child, essentially. You were amenable to that because that groundwork of being socialized as a woman was already laid. I feel like the continuation of that is you're constantly getting positive reinforcement for what they want you to do. You know, Mm -hmm. like 
they called to you, you felt good, and I'm sure they felt good because you felt good, and you see them feeling good. You know what I mean? It's like a cycle of like, oh, they want me to behave this way, and if I behave this way, I get treated well. At the extreme end of that story is a domestic violence situation. The thing that I compare it to is addiction. And and like in, in domestic violence, it's not the hitting that you're addicted to. It's the way that he apologizes. I often say that when the house is happy and calm is the most dangerous for the woman because she's getting it, it, it's it's the respite. You know, it, that's the drug. That's the feel good. When he hits, it's like it comes into self-blame. It's like, oh, well, I triggered that somehow. I did something wrong, right? And so it's the same with catcalling. It's like, oh, well, I feel good when men catcall me. But if he attacks me or if he rapes me, then it was I did something. But I, I did, you know, something that triggered that. Mm-hmm. Sekhmet was suggesting that we're all targets. And when you're spared, you're grateful that you're spared. But it's just a matter of that violence being put onto another woman and not you. And this is how women, you know, perpetuate the patriarchy is being grateful that it's not me, being in denial that it is happening to somebody else and being in denial that it's really that bad. Sam Berg, I went to one of her talks on uh, pornography and prostitution, and she talks about a, um, a foreign woman that got brought into the legalized uh, brothel states of Germany and she was 16 years old and she was found and she didn't have any teeth left. She, they, t- they had taken out all of her teeth and she had done it willingly. She had consented to it. She had signed papers saying that, yes, that she wanted this. And it was done because if she had no teeth, that Johns would pay her more. And so, like, we have these women that are, quote, unquote, consenting to acts of violence against them, right? I was into the BDSM scene when I was into my 20s. And I can tell you, the, you know, the next tragedy that liberal feminism has given us is the tragedy of consent. I don't measure rape by consent. I measure rape by violation, right? How, how does it violate and I am one of those radicals that say, if if you need lube, then it is a violation that, because you're not aroused enough by yourself. How have we gotten to a world where it's just like so socially acceptable to be violated? And then it's not considered socially inappropriate because of consent. With domestic violence, one of the things that I say all the time is that if a man goes to a bar and beats up another man, it's handled completely differently than if a man goes up and beats up his wife. He's more likely to get away with beating up his wife than beating up another man at a bar. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, there are men, and then everything is beneath men. If you're not a man, then you're not a human, and that's part of the social conditioning. That is a lot that we are taught to accept. Mm-hmm. And the base lie of that is disassociation that men do not come from women, right? Z Budapest, she says that there are only two types of people, mothers and their children. And so the first sign of disassociation is to believe that us as humans are separate from the earth, that men are separate from their mothers. Yeah. It's an attitude, right? Like you have to have an energy to recognize when you're being harmed and then to speak out against it. 
And then it translates into, can you even raise your voice and say no? You know, like a lot of women can't even raise their voice and say no. Yeah. And especially if you're getting positive reinforcement, you're not going to say no. On top of that layer of, you know, you're being groomed for a lifetime of subservience as you are socialized as a woman, you know, at what point can you break that cycle and feel comfortable raising your voice against a would-be attacker? How can we recognize that energy and, and harness it and feel strong? Yeah. The first thing I want to point out is that for the majority of women, that would-be attacker is going to be somebody that she knows, right? And it's not going to be a stranger while you're like following her in an alleyway. And so I like to talk about like, what does the other side of healing look like? What does a regulated nervous system feel like? I have gotten to experience really, really amazing, life-changing orgasms in a safe not harmful environment with a regulated nervous system, right? Orgasms should not give you irregulation, right? That's not something that our, our body is wired to do. The more we have orgasms in dysregulation, the more that trains our body to expect it. And I bring this up because in my life, I had to, once I figured out like what boundaries were, that was my first step to regulating my nervous system. Boundaries are actually not about other people. Boundaries are all about me. I am the only one that can break my boundaries. Nobody else can break my boundaries. And so what this means is that if I have a boundary that I don't tolerate people yelling at me, that means that I remove my situ myself from situations where I'd get yelled at. That does not mean that I'm going to ask somebody to stop yelling at me, right? So if I say, hey, excuse me, can you stop yelling at me? It's my boundary that, you know, I don't get into arguments that involve shouting. That's a request. That's giving the other person power to respect you or not. If you had self-respect, you just wouldn't be in that situation. You'd be like, hey, I'm going to remove myself from this situation because I don't have arguments with people that involve the raising of voices. As I was able to set clear and concise boundaries, that was the work of re regulating my nervous system. That was the emotional labor that I was having and spiritual work that I was doing in order to come back into my body. And being able to clearly and concisely state your boundaries also has nothing to do with anyone else, right? If I am not clear with why I don't like getting yelled at, with why I think it's harmful to my body. If that's not clear to me, then it then um, I'm not going to be able to communicate that clearly with anyone else. I'm so glad you brought this up because I think when we talk about psychological self-defense, in my own opinion, the best thing a woman could do for herself is establish her boundaries. Mm -hmm. And it's tough because the people who want to violate your boundaries, they don't like that because you've empowered yourself to protect yourself from this person now. Yeah, and you certainly don't get positive reinforcement for setting boundaries. Yeah, and I mean, probably not at first. I I consider myself pretty lucky because I left the BDSM scene because I found radical feminism. And so I was like going into a new group of friends that were really like positively reinforcing boundary setting. And I just kind of cut everybody off cold turkey. 
the quality of people that you surround yourself with are going to affect your life in either a negative or positive way. You know, and so if you're surrounding yourself with people that are fighting your boundaries or disrespecting your boundaries or like, you know, not accepting no, um, then, you know, like that, that's definitely a cause to reevaluate what types of friends that you want to have and what type of relationships you value. I think one of the things I say often is a well-heeled woman says no quite often. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's okay with saying no. And she loves saying no. And no doesn't deplete her and it doesn't deplete the ones around her either. Would you agree that that's a mindset flip that needs to happen? Like before you can even establish boundaries, you have to be strong enough to to stand by the boundaries you set and feel or even before that, feel that you're worth setting that boundary. Yeah. Feel that you're worth setting that boundary. So We have two very common definitions of the word victim. The legal definition, which is very important for us to have, we need to have a legal definition, a word for a person when injustice is done. And then the second common understanding of the word victim that we have is victim mentality. And this is my personal um, opinion on this, is that I believe that victim mentality happens when we are victims often enough and we experience injustice often enough that that becomes the like what is expected. And I think that that is the real healing that we need to go through when coming into self-worth and coming into like this, uh, these like, how do I become a woman uh, who has boundaries, who has a regulated nervous system is just switching the mentality of not expecting injustice, which is so extremely hard to do when, when, when it's everywhere. And what helps me the most and what I see other women really gain insight from is goddess spirituality and coming in to uh, like goddess religion uh, and seeing how special women are, right? And how divine we are, how, how connected we are to the earth. One of the practices that I've started doing is that I'd get my diva cup and I'd like feed my plants, my period blood. And I did that as a spiritual practice. And now my plants, right? Like the day before my period is supposed to start, my plants will face me instead of the sun. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. Right. And so like women's religion and women's spirituality is such a tangible practice. Part of getting there is recognizing the internalized misogyny we all have, because I say this all the time. A lot of people hate women and people who don't even realize they hate women, hate women. If you feel contempt at like the sound of a woman laughing, you might hate women. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and there's, I think there's a lot of people that feel that way, women included. So when like, I know like the first time I thought about like the goddess and goddess spirituality, if you're entrenched in patriarchy, if you have a lot of internalized misogyny, that might not be something that you can open your mind to until you recognize that you have that. How would you advise a woman into recognizing that internalized misogyny and then healing from it and letting go of it? That's a great question. Uh, I get asked that a lot, actually. So I have a pretty good answer. I I think that it takes some steps. One of the first things is that because of the amount 
of harm that women face on a day-to-day basis that is so normalized. Like we said, it's really hard to identify hatred, like women hating, when it's so common. And so I switch it and I call it comfortable. I say anything that makes a woman uncomfortable is misogyny. And so then I ask her to do comfortability check-ins. And this is what I did um, for like a year of my life is that I had an alarm set on my phone and, um, you know, it can be set once a day, every hour, every 20 minutes, however much you want. And I do a comfortability check-in and I say, all right, are the clothes that I'm wearing, am I comfortable? Is the surroundings that I'm seeing, does that comfort me? Do I need to clean up something, right? Uh, Are the smells comfortable? Should I go outside or open a window or put on some tea? Is what I'm hearing comfortable? Do I need to ask the children to be quiet? Do I need to go outside and listen to some birds? So like I go through all of my senses and I see, am I comfortable right now? One aspect, one lens to do it is through yourself and being like really getting comfortable in your skin. And that goes into, we are only going to feel comfortable if we feel safe. If we are not in a safe environment, then we are not going to be able to regulate our nervous system, right? Comfortability check-ins will regulate your nervous system. If you have high blood pressure, do comfortability check-ins. If you have some bowel problems, some stomach issues, I always say go back, what what does your ovulation look like? Do these comfortability check-ins, check in with yourself, Um, see how you are uncomfortable, see how much of your life is going through. And what women will notice, especially women who are partnered with men, is that it's really uncomfortable to be expected to do all of the housework. You know, it doesn't provide my optimal comfort to have to do all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, all of the laundry, all of the child caring and hold a full-time job. That makes me uncomfortable as in my body. And so the real challenge isn't actually coming up with what's uncomfortable or what's making you uncomfortable. The real challenge is valuing your comfort over the comfort of others. This is WLRN, Women's Liberation Radio News. If you followed my feminist commentary over the years, it should come as no surprise to you that I am passionate about female self-defense both as a practice and a subject of feminist discourse. To me, self-defense is a cornerstone of feminist strategy in the same way that male violence is the foundation of patriarchy. Self-defense is something every feminist, and ideally every woman and girl on Earth, should study, promote, and take seriously. Patriarchy wouldn't exist without male violence, and more specifically the difference in male capacity for violence versus female capacity. Males the world over are physically, verbally, and sexually violent toward women and girls to the point that every day they rape and or kill thousands of us. Meanwhile, incidences of offensive female violence against males is extremely rare by comparison. The disparity is not just due to male versus female nature, but also to biology. 
Males are physically capable of violence to a degree that women are not. Males have the physical strength to be violent toward women and girls without much effort, along with a sexual organ that by design can be used in a violent and violating manner. Women do not. Our maximum potential for physical strength and power is far lower than that of males, and the overwhelming majority of women choose not to reach the peak of their physical potential. Female genitalia can't be used to rape other living things the way a male's can. And beyond that biological fact, women and girls as a group simply don't have the desire, the sadism, or the lack of conscience required to rape even if they could. These physical, psychological, and spiritual differences between males and females preserve male power. Without self-defense, female separatism, and female tribalism, women and girls are constantly vulnerable to all forms of male violence, which keeps us afraid and cooperative with males. They know that's how it works. It's the reason so many of them aggressively discourage women from developing physical strength through weightlifting, from living a separatist lifestyle, or from simply putting other women first and above men even as non-separatists. Would women and girls put up with even half the non-violent misogyny and sexism men display if male violence didn't exist? I would bet the answer is no. Violence has always been how males keep society-wide control of women and girls. Without the male biological advantage present, without male violence at play, patriarchy would be far easier to destroy. Women likely would have done it a long time ago in that case. If we can't end male power or eliminate male misogyny and violence, then we can only choose whether to minimize or maximize our vulnerability to them. We can't predict or control what males around us will do, and we can never eliminate our chance of experiencing male violence altogether as long as we live around them. What we can do is learn how to defend ourselves in the event we encounter male violence and avoid giving males unsupervised private access to us. If you love, value, and respect yourself, you will feel entitled to defend and protect your body and mind at all costs. Period. Women who love, value, and respect themselves in their own lives have zero tolerance for male abuse and male violence and take whatever actions they can take to minimize their risk of experiencing it. If and when they take risks with men, they're calculated risks. They enter risky situations fully prepared to deal with the worst-case scenario, not in denial of its possibility. Every other animal in nature instinctually defends itself when attacked, or if it can't, then the animal tries to escape. That's how our own fight-or-flight response developed over millions of years. When I say that self-defense and separatism are core tenets of my feminism, and of radical feminism in general, Really, all I'm talking about is a conscious expression of fight or flight. Women are the only creatures in the animal kingdom who have seemingly, as a group, lost their survival instinct to the point where they will neither fight nor run from their predators. The most hardcore female separatists will argue that women and girls merely sharing a society with males is unnatural. While you may disagree with that, I don't see how you can disagree with this. Women and girls refusing to defend themselves from male violence, while also refusing to leave the danger, is unnatural. 
A dual rejection of both self-defense and separatism indicates a woman's acceptance of and cooperation with her own annihilation. Every time a man kills, rapes, or beats a woman and the violence gets online attention, the same argument eventually happens. Self-defense supporters say women should learn self-defense, ideally with a weapon they carry daily. And detractors, usually liberal women, call that opinion victim-blaming. The anti-self-defense crowd argue that women and girls shouldn't have to train in self-defense because they shouldn't have to defend themselves at all. Men should just be non-violent. These people claim that implicit in the call to female self-defense is the idea that women who can't defend themselves somehow deserve their victimization. This is parallel to the liberal argument that women should be able to engage in any and all behaviors that make them physically vulnerable to men because males should just not be violent toward them. It's an attitude based in fantasy, not reality. Men shouldn't be violent is a non-argument. It doesn't matter what they should do or be. It only matters what they are. And what they are is misogynistic. What they are is violent. What they are is sexually predatory. They're not going to categorically transform into harmless female-like creatures just because a bunch of women want them to or think they should. These men literally laugh at stories of women and girls being raped, beaten, and murdered all over the internet. Wake up. They're not changing, and making the pointless statement that they should doesn't help a single woman or girl anywhere, ever. Telling women and girls to act like men are harmless and to not bother with self-defense only puts more of them at risk. And for what? Whose side are you on? How and why women would argue against defending themselves, against other women defending themselves, I will never be able to understand. It's one thing to decide you don't want to spend the time, effort, and money to learn some form of self-defense. It's another thing to tell other women that they shouldn't, just to make yourself feel better about your own choice. Discouraging other women and girls from self-defense is anti-feminist and male-serving. It doesn't help female victims of male violence, it doesn't reduce the number of female victims, and it sure as hell doesn't change males. All it does is contribute to the staggering amount of female helplessness, powerlessness, and vulnerability in the world. I don't care if you choose karate, Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, Krav Maga, boxing, or a self-defense system outside the martial arts. I don't care if you train with knives, guns, pepper spray, a wooden staff, or some other weapon. Pick something and practice. Learn how to raise your voice with confidence. Learn how to verbalize your boundaries and resistance to an aggressive male. Learn how to control your emotions during a scary encounter with a violent male, enough that you don't freeze and can successfully resist or escape. Learn how to defend yourself. Or at the very least, learn how to become a difficult target. Doing so may one day save you. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 83rd edition podcast on women's self-defense. WLRN would like to thank our guests, Adelaide Meadow and Serendipity Day, for speaking with us. Thank you, women, for sharing your knowledge and insight with WLRN and our listeners. Until next time, this is Emily signing off on another WLRN podcast.
Hey, it's Thistle. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the donate button. Check out our new merch line to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. We have t-shirts, mugs, stickers, tote bags, and more. The lovely Margaret Vec redesigned our old logo from 2016 that Celine Michaels designed to make it look like an on button and also an old-fashioned microphone to amplify our voices. Check it out by going to wlrnmedia.com and clicking on the little shopping cart at the top of the page. Also, if you're interested in joining our team, we're always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, anchor live streams, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Thistle signing off for now. And I'm Sekhmet Shiawal. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we will focus our program on feminist collectives. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for edition 84 on Thursday, April 6th. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interviews are released, please sign up on the WLRN WordPress site. More power to all of you feminist women. Thanks for listening. This is April signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, SoundCloud, and YouTube, in addition to our WordPress site. Thanks for listening. And this is Jenna. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you. So please comment, like, and share widely. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? shown and then after that where is home tell me where is my home cause gender